0: My guest this week is Neville Pierce, a journalist and filmmaker whose short films include Bricks, Lock In, and Ghosted. His latest, Promise, just went live on Vimeo last month. It recontextualizes a biblical tale from modern-day Britain, which is where we recorded this episode. So that worked out nicely. Nev picked Seven, David Fincher's game-changing 1995 thriller starring Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt as newly partnered homicide detectives on the trail of a particularly insidious serial killer one who's very well acquainted with the seven deadly sins and who seems determined to lead them down the darkest path imaginable in the service of his mission. It's one of the defining films of the 90s, inspiring dozens of imitations that were all made by people who thought that Andrew Kevin Walker's script was just a gimmick. But that's not what people responded to in Seven. That's not it at all. This is someone else's movie.
1: Seven has had a profound effect on me, I think. You know, um... I saw it when I was 18. I was looking back at, at when I must have seen it. It would have been January 96, because those were the days when there was a bit of a gap between the UK and the US. Yeah, yeah, So it would have been a damp day in Bournemouth, and I went along with some friends, probably one we should have been studying. And I just remember, I think I went along because... I think I knew Fincher had directed it, and I'd really liked Alien 3, um, which was sort of a counter view at the time. In fact, I think I... Well, I certainly like it more than he does um, <laughs> I think most people like it
0: more than he does at this point it's come back around
1: and uh, so I knew that and I knew that Brad Pitt was there and Brad Pitt was I think I was I'd seen Legends of the Fall and you know he hit California and everyone was trying to make him a movie star and I was like i just like, hmm, I don't get it yeah. um, so being a contrarian I thought well let's go and see but, you know, can he, you know is, is it really worth all the uh, the rave reviews Um and I was just blown away by it, just completely flawed but I remember leaving and just turning to my friend and saying, I feel like I want to shoot someone (laughs) and knowing that that was like a weird reaction to have to a film um, and feeling really deeply unsettled by it, but I love that I love that when you watch a movie and it doesn't have to be a violent film or an upsetting movie even, but like a movie which changes the way you view the world just slightly, even like for the few minutes after you walk out, like everything seems like fresh Yeah oh that's the sky and that's a car and you know um, and I think it just really it affected me probably in ways I didn't really recognise and only kind of recognise now in terms of the nature of the story yeah okay it's a it's a cop film and it's a serial killer film but it's I like the the, the two main characters and their kind of battle between idealism and experience um, and apathy and Know, trying to get stuff done. I think that's a battle that we all face. Yeah. And so I think it's really compelling. Um, obviously within this incredible thriller and incredible kind of high concept well high concept slash exploitation film, you know, for Seven yeah. Deadly Sins being such a like, oh, this is gonna be lurid. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's I was trying to figure out a way to describe the the impact of the film it wasn't that no one had made that sort of film before, and Clive Barker was making them then. Uh, but there was some strange alchemy in the way that seven came together, right? Like that the the aestheticized imagery is one thing, and then the the fact that you never see the murders, that we're always stumbling upon them. There's a there's a sense that something and it, it tips into full horror a number of times. I mean, not just because of the tableau that we see, but because of the the way that it slowly, you know, reveals its endgame, which is the the crisis of, of faith that it, that is that is taking place. Um, not just in one detective soul, which is the easy way of explaining it. I mean, like that—that's the same thing. You can define someone was saying, "Oh, the Dark Knight is really about the struggle for Batman's soul." It's like, no, it's about the Joker turning Harvey Dent into a monster that's the thing everybody misses the Joker wins that movie and John Doe wins in seven spoilers because ultimately the movie is making it possible for the world to allow him to win Mm -hmm. right I mean by the time we get there the film has gone from this rain soaked noir pastiche to this blazing desert confrontation where there is nothing but suffering and and the world has been bleached of all hope. And, and to get there in 127 minutes uh, and to have Fincher so confidently steer that tone, right? Because Andrew Kevin Walker's script supposedly went through a number of different versions and different variations, and the ending isn't always the ending, and, and they were back and forth right up to the end on how Somerset was going to play the final sequences. I'm jumping all over. But uh, it, it's it's a remarkable piece of craft that is, yeah... Incredibly disturbing in the way that it attenuates its tone and and gets us to the place that it takes us because we're by the we're riding along with them by the Mm. time we get there. Um, it's the comedy sort of falls away, the mission takes over. And I remember I was older, uh, in '95, I would have been in my late 20s, Mm. and it was really, I, I wasn't. Agitated the same way. I wasn't activated by the film, but it was incredible to realize that it was going to go to this place that these movies aren't supposed to go to. You know, um, detective thrillers are supposed to end with weary resignation, and it does, but not because they've seen the devil. <laughs> it's it's really something that there's a, an almost supernatural undercurrent to the film that you're supposed to be. Thankful at the end when the bad guy is revealed and his plan is just a crazy person's plan, but no, this like the, the, the evil keeps going. The depths of it keep revealing themselves, and that was really, really jarring. Um, but being eighteen and being, you know, when you're when you're still figuring out what your aesthetic is and what, mm-hmm. what appeals to you, that would have been like being hit in the face with a sledgehammer. Yeah,
1: I think that's that's actually one of my notes. Is it was <laughs> I do like being here with a sledgehammer. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons it works, you're trying to touch on why it works, because it's not, you know, the, not the only film, obviously, within that kind of space. Mm-hmm. But I think it's sincere. Um, like, I don't think it's setting out to be sensational. I mean, it is sensational, and it is, you know, Andrew Kevin Walker was writing for an exploitation horror house at the time, of, uh, you know, company when he came out yeah, yeah. with Seven. So it's like, comes from that kind of mindset to a degree but I don't think it's a movie that's setting out to shock you. I mean, it does shock you. Um, but I think it's because it's Somerset's movie, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a two-hander, but ultimately it's his journey. And it's him. You know, my favourite book in... Uh, this, is my, this might seem a bit of a left turn, but my favourite book in the Bible is um, Ecclesiastes, because that book is kind of more or less going, um, yeah, you know what? Things are a bit shit, aren't they? So You've just <laughs> got to press on anyway. <laughs> Yeah. And I I like that I like the recognition of the fact that yeah there's plenty of grim miserable things in the world and you have to face them and you have to press on anyway and I feel like that's what this film does you know uh, and I just you know the, the scene that I love the most in the whole thing is probably Mills and Somerset in the bar when they kind of basically do you know articulate their points of view on the yeah. way the world is and you agree with both of them um, and that's there's that and then at the end when they're in the car driving John Doe out to the desert and the three of them I mean is not really saying very much but Mills is spouting off and John Doe is full of righteous indignation and you're like you're you are you're a terrible terrible human being and you also have a point <laughs> this yeah. is this is confusing yeah. um, you know I think that's one of the reasons it works so well is you know, one of the things I think Fincher talks about is in the scenes he wants everyone's point of view to be valid you know for everyone to be making a compelling case, rather than it very obviously being, oh, that guy's completely wrong. Yeah. Um, and the risk of that is you end up kind of having people watch Fight Club and going away thinking Tyler Durden is actually a hero, yeah, as opposed to a sort of dangerous figure of somebody's imagination. But that's one of the reasons those films are powerful. Again, it's like it's not its not just holding your hand the whole way through and telling you how to think.
0: Yeah, Uh, Gene Gray and I talked about that on the Fight Club episode I think now I'm beginning to think that Fincher's the director we've covered the most in this podcast like we've done this makes all three of his 90s films um, are covered and the thing about Fight Club is yeah you if you think Tyler Durden is the good guy an hour in that means the film is working because we are being seduced we are from the narrator's perspective we are understanding why he appeals to people if you still think he's the good guy at the end of the movie, you have not understood the movie. and And seven, yeah, he's sort of testing the waters there for what what indulgences he can he can ask from an audience. and um, I think the most disturbing thing about Seven at the time um, was that John Doe is allowed to explain himself at length, as opposed to every other thriller, which you know the killer says three things, you know quick. You know, overheated uh, delivery when he's exposed. You don't understand. It all has to go down, capitalism, and then you get shot or he's yeah. arrested. And here, there's another act. He reveals himself. It's unnerving. And then Act Four. You know, like what happens now? And now, the most disturbing thing, of course, is that it's Kevin Spacey who has become an unperson thanks to revelations of him being a bitch. hit. I mean, I'm, I'm underplaying that he's done apparently terrible things, and I believe the people who say those things about him. So it was a little difficult to get back into the film this time, it's just you know, that we haven't figured this out as a culture um, yet, when it's okay to understand that uh, a work can still exist without being tainted by the participation of the people involved in it at the time, and it's, I don't know, it's a whole thing, uh, obviously, that we're all wrestling with, and I haven't figured it out for myself yet, but the thing that annoys me the most about watching Seven now is that Spacey's so good. Like he's really good. And it makes it even worse to know that he's not a good person and that he's hurt people. Because god damn it, and I I yeah, he he's tainted all of the stuff that he was fantastic in. Like this and the usual suspects in American Beauty and they their great performances that now have to have an asterisk. Uh, surrounding them and I'm not I'm not asking you to comment on that necessarily but wh- when was the last time you watched the film mm-hmm. this morning really okay yeah, so I have, with,
1: like, with the commentary on though rather than and I saw the film without the commentary about two months ago hmm. two or three months ago so still post revelation yeah I mean I, uh, I maybe I don't know what this says about me I don't particularly have a problem with it in terms of that sense of like an asterisk behind, beside people because I kind of feel like the work is the work and you hear I, I hadn't heard any of those stories about him prior to them coming out but you do hear stories about people not, not necessarily of that nature but of other behaviour and you think you know I can think of filmmakers who I'm like well I, I can admire their work and not want to hang out with them
0: yeah you know. it's certainly always been I mean Polanski comes to mind yeah. right things like that
1: I mean Polanski I think I mean this is, this is slightly off topic but like the Polanski thing is you know he was I've read those statements the statements were given to the police at the time and he was done and he should have been in prison and he still, he should be in prison now. So yeah, forgets uh, you know, forgets the whole convicted part. Yeah. Like he so, went to trial and was convicted. So I feel like there is a, there is a, a lot of people get lumped, put in one pot. And I think there is a distinction there, you know, he should have gone to jail. Um, that said, you know, yeah, he should have gone to jail. Yeah. I still think Chinatown's a brilliant movie. Right. Um,
0: it's hard to... I mean, it's hard to argue against the quality. That's that, and that's the frustrating problem when someone does tremendous work and is also a monster. It's distracting now. I mean... Yeah, um, I just... Yeah, I haven't come around to it yet. I haven't figured out a way to get to it yet because, unfortunately, I really want to watch The Usual Suspects again. And mm, I remember Brian Singer, another person who is now becoming difficult to talk about, mm. in in 2000, I think, saying that the reason he wanted to the reason he had to cast Spacey in The Usual Suspects is because you had to believe in the end that that guy was a monster Mm -hmm. and that he could play that and Mm -hmm. that's just a thought that gets creepier and worse now. Mm -hmm. But that was the same and to get back to Seven, those films were released two months apart Mm -hmm. in in the U.S. The Usual Suspects opened at the end of August and Seven in early October and that was just a stunning display of range from that one guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and both and in both cases, he was working with directors who knew precisely how to use him and get the, get the most out of those performances, and surrounded by actors who were at least capable of standing up to him, if not more so. And so, the reveal of him in Seven, as you know, we glimpse the photographer, who is also him in a hat, but the reveal of him at the end of the second act or third act, depending on where you are in your structure classes, is genuinely shocking and. Undercut for me only because some idiot handed me the press notes on the way into the press screening, and it said right on the front page, "and Kevin Spacey as John Doe," which we should not have seen before the movie, before That's the film painful. started So I'm just waiting for him.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, but you, I assume, I no idea
1: because he insisted on being uncredited. Didn't mm-hmm. he? Yeah, actually, in terms of you know the advertising and yeah, and I mean it's credit to Brad Pitt that he's in the film that Spacey was John Doe because. Fincher wanted Spacey then they wouldn't... Uh, the student wouldn't meet his price. Huh. And so they looked at Ali Ermey to play... That Obviously he ended up playing the police captain. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ralph Brown auditioned for it. He was, you know, from... With Danny from Widmill and I. Dan that would have been I.
0: a very different performance. Oh, and um, of course he's in um, Alien 3. Right? Yeah. Uh,
1: Ned Beatty was... Um, sent it. And then, like, tell Fincher that he thought it was evil. <laughs> And then Pitt asked, you know, who, you know, who's going to play John Doe, and Fincher explained, well, I'd like Spacey, but the studio went spring for it, so Pitt found the studio and got them spring for Spacey. God.
0: Um, Every step of the way, that movie could have been something less. It, well, it's, it's astonishing when you think about
1: the fact the first draft that Fincher got was the first draft, but it was sent it by mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I know the story, but... Please. Yeah, you know. and the same with Pitt. I think I don't know whether he got it by mistake, but certainly it was Pitt and Fincher and Morgan Freeman insisting in the face of I think it, um, certainly antipathy from Arnold Copson, the producer, like the idea that you know, and it was like two weeks out from production before they finally got it agreed that it would be the head in the box movie. Yeah. And the, the way that they got it to be the head in the box movie was by telling the producer like. This is the head-in-the-box movie. Everyone's going to remember it's a the head-in-the-box movie. Don't take the head of the box out of the head of the box movie. Yeah.
0: You can make um, this film and it will be a mild hit, or 20 years from now, somebody at a party is going to be talking about the movie with the head-in-the-box that he saw on television the night before. And that, of course, assumes that people will still be watching television, uh, which is, yeah. like, that's not how we consume film anymore, 20 years, 30 years later. But, um... No, 20. Uh, but it is... It's... Yeah, it's a film that people had to fight for, and now, in the rearview mirror, there's no other way that the movie could exist. It has to go there. It has to be this. The thing that the thing that haunts me about that ending, too, isn't just the head in the box, but knowing that the dogs are dead. Mm-hmm. Like that he had to kill them to get to her. Mm-hmm. And that that moment on second... It didn't hit me the first time, but the second time I saw it, I mean, you get to see where Mills plays with the, the kids, which is just... Mm-hmm such a great unexpected character beat, too that that's how they talk about them and they're both exhausted and yeah two golden retrievers you would be exhausted but then the second time through it's just like oh fuck the dogs are gone like um, he's going to come home and there's nothing
1: that was one of the ideas for the alternate ending is somebody suggested uh-huh.
0: the dogs the head of the dogs being in the box mm-hmm. which any dog owner will tell you absolutely kill the motherfucker but uh, <laughs> But, yeah, it doesn't hit the same way. Uh, and it would be... You risk, obviously, just looking silly. Um, but especially if you only see one. What would you show? One ear or something? Yeah. Like you can't... The slouch. Yeah. But again, and if it wasn't Paltrow who was just luminous at that point in her career, she'd only made two or three films, but she was she was the thing to watch in all of them. Mm-hmm. And she has one scene in Malice the year before, and it's the best scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Pitt and Paltrow together are just... Like their chemistry is, is real. Obviously,
1: they fell in love love making the movie. Yeah,
0: but that's never supposed to show, right? Like all those, all those stories about people falling for each other, working on film. When you watch the movie, there's no chemistry. It's the weirdest thing because they're trying to hide it, and this one is just two radiant, perfect, tall, blonde people. I mean, it's it's the American dream, which is why she has to die because that's the whole point of the film, but everything about it if it had been someone else if it had been a different actor or a different actress it just I don't know that it would land the same way it's such a strange concoction Yeah, I don't know
1: who was considered if there were who was considered instead of Paltrow if anyone was I mean originally Denzel Washington was going to play Mel yeah I knew I mean, it wasn't that the first one I mean prior to Fincher being involved and at that point Fincher met with Gene Hackman to play Somerset mm. that could have been interesting yeah but uh, apparently Hackman said um it's like a lot of this is shot at night. <laughs> I don't do night shoots, so it's like, okay, thanks for your time. <laughs> you know, and that's that. That's amazing. And it was Arnold Copperson who got got the script of Freeman because they they've made Outbreak together, mm. and um, I think I think everyone thought, something, Finch thought I was going to be too kind of you can't give this to Morgan Freeman, <laughs> um, but he said yes, and then then they went to Pitt. Yeah, and I think that's another example of great casting with Pitt because yes, he, obviously he was hot, you know, beautiful green light movies, but he still had a lot to prove as an actor. And I think you see that in his performance, and I mean that in a good way. Like you put him up against Morgan Freeman, but I'm sure Brad Pitt the man is feeling like he has something to prove in a way that's super useful for, you know, for Mills. Mills. Yeah. It's like and that's why the performance is very showy. Like he's doing a lot of stuff and Freeman's just kinda of sat there. And that just works brilliantly. I don't don't know if that was what I presume was intentional. Yeah,
0: I think Pitt was Pitt probably still is just intuitive enough an actor to know that that will work. I mean, the Marquis de Chardet joke, which apparently was one of his line readings, Mm -hmm. uh, is like it says everything about that character that he is. He's just not. He's not there yet. Like he's still trying too hard to impress this reference that he thinks like he thinks he knows how to pronounce it, but he just. He got a huge laugh. Like he got a huge laugh at a press screening wow. in a small room with thirty people. That doesn't happen. We are very quiet people, as you know. Yeah. Um, but it was one of those moments where it's just like, oh, this is like this, this movie knows what it's doing mm. in this in the depiction of the relationship. And he, I think he hadn't shot Twelve Monkeys yet. No, I think right? Twelve he, Monkeys was after. It that. was it was released just a couple of months later, but I think they were shot a year apart. Mm. And again, that like. Knowing that that performance is in his pocket as well, and that he, in that fall that he made those two movies, it's just where he, those two films opened against each other basically, and it is just amazing to see the the, the spread in those performances. The range that he shows. It's
1: a really shows. interesting example, I think, of someone who gets better and better, and you see him learning on screen. Mm. Um, and I interviewed him once when I tried to get him talking about his performances, and rarely, for an actor, he didn't like talking about himself. Yeah, he doesn't. It <laughs> was like okay I figured out like way too late into the interview it's like if I talk to you about the world uh, you know journalism and things like that you'll be interested but talking about yourself you don't really
0: care yeah he's always shied away from, I've never interviewed him myself but he's always shied away from process or, or anything about what draws him to projects unless there's a specific I think he'll talk about politics as a, as a as yeah. line towards something Like he said Mr. and Mrs. Smith was his attack on capitalism after Fight Club which makes perfect sense yeah. but yeah so uh, He's yeah, he's, he's got something to prove as an actor. It's nineteen ninety-four when they shoot it, and he's made a river runs through it in Legends of the Fall and, and obviously Thelma and Louise, but he's still the pretty boy, or the pretty boy who's trying not to be the pretty boy by growing the big beard in, in Legends of the Fall and yeah. being all serious. And then this comes along and he's he just he doesn't seem to have a lot of protection, right? Like there are not there's no tricks he can pull He's not he doesn't have the, the contact lens in Twelve Monkeys, he doesn't have the, the, the period stuff going on for him from the other films. It's just him in a suit. Mm. And it's one of his I think it really is one of his best performances because I there's no there's nothing between him and the other actors.
1: Because the stuff he did pre-Fambler Louise, this is my thing about this slightly off point, but about just kind of learning. Now we see it with actors and we see it with filmmakers, we expect people to be brilliant right out of the gate. You know, you see it with directors where they make a film and you go, Yeah that's right three stars you won't, make, you won't get to make another one and you see with actors as well there's a massive pressure on people to be brilliant immediately and sometimes people you know in like recent examples like Ryan Reynolds and Jake Hall, who people could see something in them so they kept on getting get, get, get given a shot and mm-hmm. eventually it did work yeah but Pitt was the same like the stuff he did in the 80s pre movies, he was the lead in movies and it oh
0: just, it I was like, reviewing video at the time I saw him oh dear Johnny Sweet is interesting yeah. that's the the best one of those yeah there was that was it called Cunning class
1: the yeah, one where and is it across the line or
0: uh no, running maybe. i think yeah i think across the line maybe oh I should, I should, but yeah the the teen rebel yeah. stuff that just because yeah. he looked like that and my point
1: is not to be sort of bad mathing his early work but just to be like you know it's just it's kind of encouraging <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to see someone who started out you watch those movies and you'd be like okay you're here because you're pretty but why on earth else are you here and then he just kind of evolved and evolved and I think he's a really good producer now as well at least in terms of his instincts for material and the things he goes after oh yeah Plan B Um, is making some great stuff um, you know I I think weirdly he's not um, necessarily appreciated enough because he's still very pretty and very famous and you know a celebrity Mm -hmm. but how gifted he is um, and yeah, that's definitely the, the film which like stands out from for me as the one where you're like, Oh okay, you've got it. Like and um, I guess it's not an accident that he's somebody who, you know, has with what, what, Fincher three times now. Yeah. Um, yeah which so. is really the only repeat business that Fincher's done with a lead, you know. Yeah. Um And you right, know, like, there's nothing there, there's not really anything there's nothing there between him and the audience. Um, in a way that there is, like Twelve Monkeys, like it's a good performance, but it's it's, it's a, performance. a performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I, mean, I, actually, great... I probably haven't seen that since it came out. Uh, I just um,
0: rewatched it a couple of months ago, as it turns out, and it is he is a pinball. He is just bouncing literally off of the other actors, and it's delightful, but it's also a huge misdirect because of the, because of the way the structure of the film works and so it's very entertaining but he ultimately has no purpose you could lift him out of the movie and the movie would still like the events that's the whole point the events would unfold anyway Mm -hmm. but it's delightful and weird and he didn't do the junket which was I was on that uh, press junket in New York because I wanted to meet Terry Gilliam Mm -hmm. and everything else was just a bonus Um, but he wasn't there and it was really disappointing because uh, there are so many questions uh, about influence about you know why and now of course Twenty-odd years later, I know he wouldn't have answered any of them. Uh, but it's a fascinating thing to be watching that career in, in the rearview mirror now and looking back, it's like Morgan Freeman has been playing World Weary People before seven and since seven. Yeah. And Brad Pitt rarely plays ordinary human beings. That's just not something that people see him as, and with good reason. But yeah, Mills is a phenomenal character for him. He has this fully developed arc he's like he's he's descending into the circles of hell with no way out and he doesn't know it which makes it absolutely tragic the second and third and fourth time through to follow his disintegration
1: well he's the guy who's like the audience is running it's like he's he the pup is gonna get kicked in the face he's, yeah. he's running headlong into the wall kind of going yeah we can do this we can do this yeah
0: yeah and his his conviction uh, match to Somerset's cynicism is, I think, where the, the push-pull—it's it's what allows all the philosophy to work. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, they both have valid points, but we want to believe him mm-hmm. because he's the optimist, mm-hmm. and that's why the movie works. Like that's why the movie comes down on you at the end the way it does, just because. Oh no, you—you you don't know what you're in for at all, and nothing. In your world, it's not, you know, there's always the line in these movies where nothing we've ever seen, nothing can prepare you, but nothing in his perspective can prepare him. Mm -hmm. He's coming at something that is literally inconceivable to him, and Somerset sees it before he does.
1: And Somerset says it the whole way through the movie, and I think that's another reason why the end works versus some kind of twist ending Mm -hmm. movies. Is that yeah? It is it's certainly a surprise, you know. And I mean, I've watched. I can't. I couldn't say how many times I've seen it. I still find the film hugely satisfying. Obviously, nothing is going to quite equal the first time you see it and go, "What?" You know, just mm-hmm. you just feel hollowed out. But the movie warns you the whole way through. You know, Somerset saying this is not going to end well. You know. Um, yeah, it's, it might be a subtitle and then you know, on the screen throughout. But to, by which you mean that when it is a when it is a very downbeat ending, to say the least. You like it's not. I think that's probably one of the reasons why people it got good word of mouth and people did go back to it. It writes a check and then it caches a check. Yeah, it's just it's not just doing something completely out of the blue. Um, and the best movies that have those kind of twists do do that. Like Six Sense is another one of those where you go. You watch it a second time around and you go, How did I not notice that? I realized that the whole movie is very really obvious. Yeah. Um, although this one, this has, well, has more resonance.
0: It's a different thing, isn't it? Well, it is it is a different thing. And I think the thing that The Sixth Sense does so beautifully is incorporate the supernatural into a mundane reality. You know, it's just everyday Philadelphia just with dead people wandering around that only some characters can see. But Seven is however gorgeous and and asceticized and, and and distinctive it's it's supposed to be the real world yeah and john doe is just a lunatic he's very smart and he's very resourceful um but there's nothing in it that can't happen, which is the most distressing thing. Yeah, there's that it's nothing a... consoling about. It yeah, at all. Like Six is consoling. Ultimately, sure, there's a happy ending. You know. Ultimately, he learns his he learns how to use his gift, which is the story all ghost stories end up telling now, which is fine. But we've seen it. Seven. I mean, we've also seen movies like Seven where the killer gets away with it or triumphs morally. Mm. But this is the whole film is just designed to. Press itself down on you until you can't breathe. And going through it the second time, someone, yeah, somebody, I I didn't have the advantage of this. I knew who John Doe would be because of the stupid press kit incident. But somebody told me afterwards who hadn't seen it at a press screening and just wandered in and said, I, you know, in the last act, if it had turned out that it was Morgan Freeman all along, I would have been okay with it, that he would have bought it Mm. because of the defeat. And the idea that his foreshadowing could be interpreted as, Mm -hmm. and it's been me all along. Also because you never actually see any of the murders committed. Mm -hmm. He could be staging the tableau. And I thought if it had been anyone other than Morgan Freeman playing that role, I could buy it. Mm -hmm. But I'm so glad it wasn't. I'm so glad that they played that straight. Mm -hmm. Because, again, it would be something where people would be talking about the twist. But the twist that they ended up with, the ending they went with, is so much more devastating than... The good guy is the bad guy. Which, I mean, although that is what happens as well. A different good guy. Uh, but you know, and the other ending that they had storyboarded, it was on the Criterion Laserdisc, I think it surfaced in storyboards on the DVD or Blu-ray as well. When the, the ending that has Somerset shoot yeah. Doe before Mills can and say, I'm what are you doing? I'm retiring. Yeah. No. <laughs> like I think everybody knew that wouldn't work. And they just staged it for the storyboards as badly as they could <laughs> so that the studio would go yeah you're right head in the box there's no other it's, way I mean, it's
1: an interesting notion because it's like he's then sacrificing himself to a degree but I think that offers is too much of an easy route for the film yeah you know it would be too it would be kind of it would work but I don't think it would satisfy I thought it was interesting the first time I saw that I was like oh okay I wonder how Maybe you'd feel slightly happier walking out. I don't know. Yeah. yeah,
0: it doesn't line up with the the moral universe that's established. Just, I mean, you think about Leland Orser as the victim of of lust, mm-hmm. the the of the, the ultimate victim of lust, I suppose. Um, who is so shattered and destroyed in that in that one scene that I think that brings home. The, the trajectory of the film more effectively than anything else. Like, this is awful. And, yes, it's a horrific depiction of violence against a woman who has no identity or agency and, and is just a body, but... It was 1995, and that's kind of how people s- accepted that stuff as a film noir-ish representation. Well, also, it's not, like she's the, it's not like she's the only victim who doesn't have a life in the movie. That's... that's have
1: a life in the movie. Exactly,
0: that's the other thing that's sort of forgivable about, about it. It just... Because of the nature of her murder, it's just so horrible. Watching it again, I was just like, oh, that's... Yeah, that's just... Someone indulging his worst self as a screenwriter, trying to figure out what the most horrible thing you can imagine is, and then that's where it led him. Because gluttony—it's hey, we've all been there. <laughs> yeah, it's disturbing, but it's also completely preposterous. Yeah. You can disconnect on on one level or another, and you can just think, "Oh, that's a cool, like that's like a Friday the Thirteenth murder. Yeah. You know, like, that's that's kind of neat." When you get to lust, there's no rationalization of it it's just awful mm-hmm. and I think that that's why it's effective and Orser plays that and there's no joking out of it there's no like there's no attempt to shrug it off even though like, the other characters are just sort of silent when they're faced with it and there's no processing of it other than oh god that's awful and I think in that moment you know, again if you think John Doe has a point this is the part where you have to keep watching mm-hmm. and realize that no he doesn't this is mm-hmm. just cruelty but, yeah, I, I mean, I remember seeing that and thinking, oh, okay, the movie is going to, an, to a place that most of these movies don't allow themselves to go to. I mean, even Manhunter, ten years ago, hadn't, nine years earlier, hadn't really depicted any of its horrors. They're all suggested and After the Fact. But, um, I mean, you see Freddie Lounge in his flaming wheelchair, but you don't actually watch the wounds inflicted on him. It just cuts to it. Uh, this movie is about... The aftermath of depravity, and by going for it, I mean just I think, wow, it's just it. Okay, this was a major studio release in 1995, when other people were making movies like Copycat or yeah. uh, or, or The Usual Suspects, which is a, a gorgeous and clever movie, but is not about this sort of ugliness. Mm-hmm. And I get it, like I get where it fits in Fincher's development to after Alien 3 this was the way he could show people that he was commercial and viable but also an artist mm-hmm. um, but still like to take that leap and, and I'd love to talk to him about it someday because I'm sure there are angles on it that I haven't even considered that's just the kind of filmmaker he is because I've, I've spent a lot of time with him on set and
1: interviewed him a bunch but I've never actually really spoken to him about this film Mm-hmm. And I don't really know why that is, probably just because I got to know him after, like around the time of Zodiac. Um, oh, that's an interesting kind of companion piece Yeah. In a way. I mean, one of the reasons I mean, if he got made, I think is because people were kind of going, I know it's like a 160 page script where they don't catch the killer, but it could be seven two. Yeah. <laughs> you know? What um, if this is 77th? Yeah. Um... But I think, you know, he said about Alien 3, you know, his lesson from Alien 3 was take all the responsibility because you're going to get all of the blame. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Which is why I think that film was so important, as much as he, you know, it sounds like he had an absolutely hideous time making it. It's like, well, if you go from being a really successful music video director and commercials director and then go and make a really successful movie, that's great, but you probably become insufferable. (laughs) You know? um, Yeah but if you go and then basically get your ass handed to you and get ripped apart I wonder if that does you good in the longer term you know <laughs> to, yeah. go and to go oh, okay well I'm not gonna there are certain things I'll compromise and there are certain things I won't you
0: yeah. know?
1: Um, and I wonder whether someone who haven't had that experience would have been able to make seven and actually stick to stick to his guns in the way that he did Yeah. and just because I go well of, so you know I've got to just go for it because ultimately any movie you make it might be the last one you're going to make so you think you've got to have the attitude of like right, I'm going to go for it but it's very
0: easy to compromise just to settle sure and and the studio wants you to because they're more concerned about return on investment and the way you do that is through the path of least resistance traditionally I mean that's why Transformers make a billion dollars every two years Mm -hmm. uh, without ever learning anything (laughs) or ever being good but yeah, Fincher... I mean, you, you look at his body of work, and while I really don't like Benjamin Button, mm-hmm. I understand why he made it and what drew him to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just... He makes movies that no one else should make, I think is the way I would put it now. Not because they're uh, transgressive or distressing or, or that they shouldn't be made at all, but because... He makes the he finds the perfect iteration of the material. Like that Gone Girl adaptation is as good as the movie could be, mm. based on that book. The book's great, but it doesn't allow for a lot of uh, leeway in the interpretation. And he just narrows into the story and, and mimics the structure and lets the actors carry it. And it's just it's so good. It's mm. it just fires along on all cylinders, beginning to end. And and uh, you know you you hear about him destroying the actors with 90 takes and, and all that but that's how you get those performances in that that way and i'll i'll defend it because at this point i'm pretty sure anybody who signs up to work with him knows what they're getting into yeah
1: i think a lot of them enjoy it genuinely i mean in terms of i mean, there are some people who don't enjoy it you know yeah. for sure um but i think you want to act it's like you want to direct like you don't you know you don't get to direct very much as in, in terms of, yeah, that process of being on the floor and working with actors yeah. and that stuff, which is really fun. So much of directing is, can I get the money? Who am I going to cast? Who am I going to work with? And, you know, Can this happen? Is this the right thing? And just, like, all the exhausting work of not making movies, even on the scale that I make stuff, which is small, short films, as it stands, it's still, like, especially short films, because you can't make... Because there's no ever, never any return on investment. Yeah. You're basically, go. Would you like to make a film? that's a bit like burning thousands of pounds. You know? <laughs> um, so if you're on the floor with the actors, then why not? You know, granted, you don't want to be doing it to no end. You know, you don't want to be doing it to just kind of like yeah, go again because I can't think of anything else. Yeah. But that is not the experience of not. know the people I've spoken to, you not know, of like Ben Affleck or uh, Jonathan Groff or Mind Hunter. It's like it's quite
0: specific. Um, yeah, I mean, otherwise you'd never finish. It just if you if you did that with every scene, with every, with every setup, they would there would not be movies.
1: And there's a, and you kind of look at it and go. I look at it and go, man, you know. I think Ruffalo said like sixty-seven takes or whatever in his first scene. He was just like hoping that Fincher was walking over and fire him. You know. <laughs> um, but there's a reason that pretty much everybody in the David Fincher film gives their career best work you know um, even people who've been terrific for years like Michael Douglas is terrific in the game
0: mm. you know I think that's I forgot we did the game there's four films in the 90s <laughs> and we've covered them all now um,
1: you know that's and I, you know what if that happened a couple of times you go okay well you know it's a coincidence but if it happens consistently you know that's that's not an accident it doesn't mean that everybody has to do it you know and obviously it doesn't mean that we will all have the opportunity to have that much time or not the opportunity, not given those opportunities, you take them, you know, Mm. but you have to have a certain uh, determination and talent in order to,
0: for it to, to be able to take them. Yeah. You have to be, I mean, I also think that to make a movie like Seven, you have to understand determination. You have to know how to evoke that momentum and that compulsion. I'm not suggesting he's a serial killer himself, but certainly, like the obsessive nature of, of filmmakers. I, of course, this would be a movie instead of a novel or a, mm-hmm. a comic book. This this has to be a cinematic experience. It's immersive. It's disturbing. Even the way that the the rain just always falls at the same tempo. Like he's worked with his sound engineers and his and his uh, lighting guys to get us to understand that, even though it's never commented on mm-hmm. at all. It's just an element that never goes away and makes you feel the pressure on on these people Mm. and the world is just a dark ugly place with dark ugly people and maybe somebody does the right thing and maybe the right thing is the wrong thing and everything goes to hell because that was the plan all along and just like it's a film that you can watch over and over again because you can see the traps being set and Mills and Somerset walking into them over and over Mm. again and just and not seeing you know, not reading the signs and not understanding how things are about to go horribly wrong it's, it's a film about the end of the world as experienced by two people and had the world ended I think I would have also understood that do you think
1: your feelings about the movie would change if the ending was different in terms of the original cut that was first shown to trust audiences Mills shoots dough you know, gunshot cut to black and you need to hear a couple more gunshots we assume movie.
0: he shot himself
1: or we don't know, I don't know right. that he, well, yeah. w- whether he shoots himself or whether he's just, you know, he's just filling dough with bullets, but that's the, there's no other explanation. There's no sense. Because I don't, I don't know for myself, but I know, like, the coda was kind of, everyone was kind of, that was the compromise. Like, we'll do the coda with the Hemingway quote to kind yeah. of soften things a little bit. I don't think anyone really wanted to do it. I love that quote. But you know th- that he's going to go back to work. Yeah. You know, so you do know that there is a sense of, in spite of all this, like, horror he's going to press on.
0: Yeah, but that's what makes it tragic Mm -hmm. on every level, that he's ruined, that Doe has ruined Somerset's retirement as well, Mm and he's forced him to continue to be, I mean, in in a lot of ways, it's the story of the knight, right, who just can't put his sword down. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, this is why I I was so glad that it didn't turn out to have been Somerset's plan all along, which I know was never scripted, or or even an idea, but someone, once I heard that reading, it sort of contaminated me as the possibility of, like, yeah, you could make that work, but no, it shouldn't be. He's he is untarnished. He is un he's he's broken, but he's not destroyed. And so, yes, of course, Somerset has to keep fighting. And that's you know that's the that's the the enduring tragedy of all genre fiction, right? Of all of all noir, of all detectives. If they don't get killed, they're just going to go back to work. Mm. Uh, it's Buffy, right? You you never stop fighting until the monsters get you. And yeah, I don't think Somerset would have he would have been bored in retirement but I think he would also probably have had a chance at finding a life for himself and that's gone now too because he's just watched this fresh young kid just be destroyed utterly it's it's a it's a gravity if there's, any comfort, if
1: there's any comfort police don't last long in retirement generally speaking <laughs> my dad's retired I don't know com- that that is a comfort <laughs> as, in, as in like he's gone back to work he's probably going to last longer at work oh good yeah you know? because um, it's a vocation isn't it, you know? mm-hmm.
0: um. I'm just reading um, I'll Be Gone in the Dark which is Michelle McNamara's book um, the late Michelle McNamara's book about finding uh, a serial killer in California operating in the 70s and 80s and she just talks about how all the police detectives who, who ran the cases, his murders and, and sexual assaults are now older and retired and she's count, she counts them as her friends because she, they're still working the case with her they just can't stop uh, and the one good thing about it is that her book probably got the guy caught mm-hmm. in the end. That she definitely exposed him, and it probably led to his arrest. But, um, almost certainly. But, yeah, the the nature of the job is just to destroy the person who does it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the, the mythology of it, right? That's mm-hmm. how we built it up. Worse than first responders, they experience trauma, but they get to save people. The detectives, Homicide detectives are never saving anybody. They're just saving the next victims.
1: Well, there's always somebody who gets away. Yeah. So yeah. I think it must grind you down, yeah, especially if you don't... Well, I don't know how... Well, that's why there's so much fiction about alcoholic <laughs> detectives, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> um, have you read The Force, Don Winslow's book? No. About police in you no. look at that, it's sensational. I think, um, I think Jim was making a film of it. Um, no, I highly, highly recommend that. I mean, he's the, the lead in that is a kind of corrupt cop, but the point is, like, well... He's corrupt, but he has his rules. You know, and that's kind of...
0: There's that it, classic man with a code thing.
1: Yeah, and it, and it works. It really works. You're like, okay, you know, it's interesting. You can sit back in an armchair, call back at all, but actually there's a guy on the front line. What's he doing?
0: You know, how do you deal with that stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, I think mean, it's good that we don't get to know too much about Somerset, really, other than his upright moral presence. We don't know anything about what he, what he likes. He complains about pizza. He's a monster. Yeah, that's, the the possibilities of, I mean, there's a version of of this movie, like there's a version of every noir thriller where we get to find out he, you know, raises birds on a rooftop or something. Mm -hmm. We know more about Mill's life just because we go home with him. Somerset just does this, as far as I can tell. It's what makes Morgan Freeman perfect for it, because he can inhabit that and Mm -hmm. fill it out in the the corners with just eye movements and and a shrug. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I don't think there is any point in him retiring. Really, this is his life. This is what he this is what he wants. I think in a weird way.
1: Well, we know that he just he endures, you know, and he did have some already, and he doesn't anymore. Yeah. I uh, presumably because of the job, but um, yeah, it's not more complicated than that. You just press on. Yeah. Press on in the face of all in the face of all the darkness.
0: Yeah. Um, it's such an uplifting.
1: but that's one of the things I like about another thing I like about Zodiac as well which is like like jumping forward Mm -hmm. but like that's a movie where you go that's really a movie about information as much as anything else and like the movement of information and the sort of bureaucracy of law enforcement and that's a film I don't think my dad's ever seen Seven I think I probably advised him against it um, but he's all Zodiac we were saw Zodiac and he you know, obviously he's a British policeman but he came up and that's the best film I've ever seen about police work because mm-hmm. that's the reality of police work is it's you know
0: you don't, you, it, End, you don't endless and unrelenting and inconclusive
1: yeah you're not like it's not glamorous you know <laughs> it's just kind of yeah a grind a grind and just pushing the ball forward and inch at a time you know mm-hmm. trying to get there um Which, well, I mean, the difference between the two movies might be why
0: Seven made like $300 million worldwide and Zodiac made a tenner. Yeah, possibly. People like an ending, even if it's a downbeat horrible one. Well, that's the best cut movie of the
1: 90s, the best cut movie of uh, the noughties.
0: Yeah, it's kind of amazing that he can make those films so, so, rhyme together so well, because they are incredibly (coughs) different otherwise, but they do feel like, I mean, there's clearly one... One intelligence behind both movies. Mm-hmm. Oh, now I just want to watch Soviet again, right? Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, to to talk about influences, then I suppose uh, what, is there anything? I mean, your short films are not necessarily Finchery, uh, but is there anything of of Seven that that has made it into your toolbox? Anything you've absorbed or stolen or put into your creative DNA?
1: I mean, probably unconsciously, mm-hmm. uh, not explicitly. You know, as in nothing I've especially gone I'll have that I'll have that I think Bricks the first short I made is probably the most planned as a film and actually the most sort of visually cohesive in a way because of that and I was watching from this morning and thought oh yeah you've tried, you have subconsciously tried to ape some of this stuff um, how well or not you know we'll have to find out by going, <laughs> going looking on Vimeo. again but I mean that film has a sense of humour I hope even though it's kind of this little dark story has a sense of humour Um you know, who knows what else has influenced the stuff that I've done you don't know you kind of look back and go well, why have they made these films and it's probably because of yeah the stuff that's gone on, on in your own life and then the stuff that influenced you a lot when you grew up you know which so Polanski films Fincher Cronenberg mm-hmm. Ken Loach Soderbergh um, and uh,
0: these are all my favourite directors too yeah <laughs>
1: And you go, oh, okay, well, you know, not that you're deliberately going, oh, I'm going to try and make a Woody Allen movie, or I'm going to try and make a Ken Loach movie, um, or a David Fincher movie. I mean, the, the, the thing about Fincher is, as much as he's somebody who I do know and will ask for advice, I'm also, you know, setting yourself up to compare yourself, or any of you work to, like, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time is a fool's game. <laughs> <laughs> and accepting, like, you know, even if I had that kind of level of technical knowledge, like you're just going to follow your own path. You kind of think you might be able to go. I'm going to try and do this and try and control it, but ultimately, you don't know anything that's going to grab you about a project mm-hmm. and the things that you know, so, so it feels like a little pretentious to, com- to compare the point because I've made short films. I'm going to make future films, but obviously, I'm nowhere near his level. But I used to think, oh yeah, well I'm going to do this film and then I'm going to do that film and then I'm going to do this film and I'm going to try and do this. And now I realise that there's too many other factors. So all you know is you've got to make the film that you fall in love with at the time. Mm-hmm. The thing that you fall in love with enough to know you're going to stick through it even though there are going to be times where you hate it. <laughs> um, and that's been the case with each of the shorts. It's like you go, okay. Because you know, maybe short films in some ways I think they're harder to make. Well, I'll find out when I make a feature where they're harder to make in a feature but like because there's no return on investment because it's you have much you have very very little time and very little money and there's no the only person who's pushing you to make it is yourself you know mm. so you no know, one else is going yeah please stop doing the stuff that earns money and go and make the thing that will, uh, will hemorrhage cash do that <laughs> um, the, so you just try and make what's yeah just follow your nose try and try to make what's inside yourself and then you watch stuff because you think well, that's how you get fed. Right. You know, that sounds a bit pretentious as well, but like, no, uh, if you're burnt out or if you're struggling you just kinda of go, Oh no, you I will refill by rewatching certain things. And watching stuff in a in a, that wouldn't necessarily people wouldn't necessarily see the correlation between them. I've written a sort of or co-written a thriller, Future throw which I will make, which is about a kind of man on holiday whose child goes missing and the only guy to help him find his child is is the dad who's fallen out with really badly and it's kind of this class war st- straw dogsy kind of story. Mm. But actually the film I watch when I wanna reinvigorate myself in relation to that is Black Swan. Very okay. different. Because yeah. it's about somebody losing themselves and losing their sense of reality and kind of descending into some kind of madness through panic. So that's there's no way I'm gonna go, oh watch Package, it's just like Black Swan. <laughs> no one else is going to watch that movie and go, Oh yeah. You who know, could have played that really well, Meryl Portman? Um, <laughs> but you just—you don't necessarily know where your inspiration will come from, um, and yeah, it just all becomes fuel. I'd love to say I was somebody who like gets it from literature and art, and occasionally, like, you know, I will try and make an effort to kind of—I must look in this gallery, or more often than not, to look on Google Images. But I'm not particularly cultured or particularly well-read movies of the thing, you know. Um, and every once in a while. You stumble across something where you feel like you've got a specific and interesting point of view uh, and thing to provide, and you hope, obviously, that enough other people feel the same way when they watch it. Yeah. Well,
0: or you could just make a serial killer movie. I mean, well, that's where yeah, the money is. I hear
1: there was a sequel script for Seven at some point. Really? Yeah, I don't know how true this was. What would be the point? But it was uh, with uh, Somerset as a psychic. Oh, God.
0: <laughs> no. So you know, guys, I am available. <laughs> oh, if if Fincher knows you personally, then the best thing he can do is tell you to stop. Like just you would. I would almost. You know, you can take the gig just so you get the email from it.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's not something that's ever likely to happen. Unfortunately. <laughs> I'm
0: psychic.
1: Why would you do that? I don't know what happened to that. I remember it.
0: we well, um, hope it was flowed. set on fire. Yeah, I'm sure remember? it was a, it
1: was burning in a dumpster. Um, I think, well, he's got, he's got a veto on anything like that, I believe. So oh, good. don't need to worry about it. See, the universe has a moral balance after all. Yeah, despite all the hideousness, you keep on, and good things
0: will happen. <laughs> My thanks to Neville Pierce, whose new short film, Promise, is available to watch on Vimeo right now under the pitch. We'll provide a link to it on the site. You'll be able to find it pretty easily. You can also find Nev's other shorts, Bricks, Lock In, and Ghosted, the last one starring friend of the show Alice Lowe, at vimeo.com slash Neville Pierce. Thanks also to Audrey Ewell and Paul Atherley. They know what they did. You can follow Nev on Twitter at Nev Pierce, all one word, and you can find Seven on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.